Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. We've been flying through 1 Corinthians. We're slowing down in, first, in uh, chapter 15. Uh, just There's been such good stuff in there. I don't want to blow right through it and uh, make sure we get it all in there. Let's pray and we'll get started, God. We thank you for this time this morning. Each person here, God, we know they are all a testimony. They are all... Um, a story of your redeeming grace, your calling, your ministering, your your hands, Lord, touching our lives. And so we pray that you'd speak to us by your spirit, Lord, through your word, that we'd hear it, we'd understand it, we'd get it, we'd be convicted by it, we would change, we'd recognize you, who you are and who we are in light of that. And so we pray that you would just... Um, Bless this time in Jesus name. Amen. All right. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20. Now, uh, this whole chapter of chapter 15 has been dealing, uh, with the, um, solidity and the reality of the resurrection. And Paul starts off at the beginning of the chapter dealing with any doubts you could have about the resurrection. And, and we had some quotes and some you know, J. Warner Wallace, the detective who had gone and looked into it uh, from a purely detective, homicide detective, you know, mind standpoint. And he came to faith through it. Right. And that Paul said, like, you know, it was seen by us. It was seen by, you know, the 12. It was seen by over 500 witnesses and many of which were still living many of which died martyrs' deaths, claiming to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. And so he's saying the resurrection, if we don't have the resurrection, we're of all men most pitiable. And then he goes on and says, so how is it that there's a resurrection? You don't believe the resurrection, not just of Jesus, but personally of the believer, that we are risen again and we have hope in eternity. So he went from that, from looking at it from a resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection of us, where we also get to experience that same resurrection power in our lives. Uh, the Corinthian culture had worn on the believers and they started to let uh, uh, mix the two cultures, right? Which has led to doubt and confusion and compromise. And the... Uh, parallels between Corinth and modern day society are staggering, right? I mean, really, if you look down and meet offered to idols, not really, that's like maybe not one of them so much, but the principle of the matter and all the other things that have come up and this, this church that was vibrant, that the Lord was doing something in had become compromised because the culture was sticking around and putting in its two cents and it was wearing off all of the effectiveness of the good news of the gospel. And so they had started doubting the resurrection because it wasn't really popular in their culture. And so the culture was wearing on them and it had led to compromise. We know that's just not where we want to be, but this is, this is so natural. And so uh, it's something we so easily fall into, right? The culture wears on you enough until you start saying, okay, fine enough. Yeah, that, all right, you're right. Okay, fine. 
And we start saying, okay, I know the Bible says that, but it doesn't make sense with my mindset and the way the world is now. And it was written a long time ago. Well, yeah, it was written a long time ago. But these things we struggle with as a culture are not new. They keep coming up again and again. There's nothing new under the sun. And so we have to put our faith on, not on man's mindset, rationality, intellect, any of those things, but on the word of God, which has been able to withstand all of those times, even though society has tried to throw it out time and time again. So when we look at this, we need to look at not just the compromise of Corinth, but the compromise of our own lives. Like, where have I compromised? Where have I taken the easy road out and thinking that this would be more helpful to be more accommodating, but in doing so, you've taken away the power, neutered the gospel, so to speak, right? Taking away all of its uh, potency. So, it's with that that we go into uh, verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's go right now. This is kind of where we ended last week. But Christ is risen from the dead. Paul says, all my claims, all my stake, I'm putting everything on the fact that he is risen from the dead. Why could Paul say that? Because he had seen him for himself, right? And uh, and he's the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. The idea of first fruits was something that would be understood in Jewish culture, right? There was the first fruits, it was uh, the feast of first fruits, and it was actually observed the day after the Sabbath following the Passover. You can find that in Leviticus uh, chapter 23. If you did the Bible reading, you, we were there not that long ago, right? How good is first and second, you know, like going through all of that stuff? It's just so, first and second, Samuel, first and second Kings, so cool seeing God through all of it. Um, but you going through. Back in the day, the first fruits, the feast of the first fruits was the, the, uh, the day after the Sabbath, after Passover. So, by the way, that's the day Jesus rose from the dead, <laughs> right? So Jesus rose on the day of the feast of the first fruits. Let that blow your mind for a second, you know. But he, it was the first fruits. But the idea of first fruits was it was an offering of grain to represent, of the first of the harvest, to represent God's going to bring more, but I'm going to take what you've given me and entrust this most precious amount back to you, Lord. And I'm going to trust that you're going to continue to do the same. But the first fruits. Is, is in this case is talking about Jesus as the first fruits, the first one to have risen from the dead in resurrection power. We then becoming part of that, but he was the first fruits to those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all are made alive. And this is kind of like an abbreviated version of Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 17, or actually through 20, where, uh, where Paul says to the Romans, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. Um, but nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam who is the type of one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. 
For if by one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man Jesus abounded to many. Then verse 20 says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So just as sin reigned from Adam through Moses to, you know, the whole old covenant is the law pointing out this glaring, gaping hole in our lives. That we are not worthy. We are dirty. We are not an acceptable sacrifice in and of ourselves. And so we're covering it with this blood of the animals and, and we're, we're making do. And God's got this set up where he, he's got us longing and yearning for one who could fulfill the law, who could bring back this reconciliation to be able to have relationship and communion again with the father. That man would be Jesus who would come and live a perfect life and then die for us. And Adam all die in Christ all shall be made alive. And this is the gospel message. We were dead in our sin in Adam. And so we needed Jesus. There's no doubt that sin rules in this world. I mean, it's so obvious, right? Man continues to progress. We have machines that are unbelievably powerful. We have technology. We have cars that drive themselves. Not well, but, you know, no, they do. As long as the computer operating system is working well, then, you know, it's good. But we have all these things that are, are so forward in our world. And yet sin seemingly is getting worse. Because the fact of the matter is, we don't have a machine that can atone for sin. And the more that we think that we're capable in and of ourselves, the further we get away from God and the more evident that sin becomes in our culture, in our society, in our world. Because we think we don't need God anymore. We just had a conference and, and that's been the trend throughout history. Is people saying, we don't need God. Religion is dead. It's all going to be done away with. Don't worry. It's, we, we have ascended beyond the use of this crutch we call religion. And then man is left on their own with what morals, with what, what's right, what's wrong, and everything falls apart. And what happens? We return to God and we come back. This, it's just like the children of Israel, right? They're left on their own. God says, okay, here you go. And then the, this king comes in and he, he's wic- more wicked than his father, right? Has not this been written in, the, in all the chronicles, right? If you've been reading along, you know exactly. Has it not been written in the chronicles of the kings? And, you know, you go through it. Each one more wicked than the last, seemingly. Then every once in a while, there'll be a king that'll come in and he does right in the eyes of the Lord. And he tears down all the the high places that were meant for worship of gods. And then, and God shines on them and blesses them and takes care of them. And the prophets are speaking and good things are happening. And then the next generation comes and says, oh good, we're blessed now. We don't need you anymore, God. See you later. And what happens? Ruin, destruction, war, famine. Rough living. God's so gracious that when we ask him to leave, he listens to a certain extent, right? He's like, oh, okay. Let's see how this goes, right? Just like with a kid, you know. 
You say, don't do that. Don't do that. Stop doing that. And they don't listen. And they don't listen. They don't listen. You go, consequence time. Let's watch this happen. And I'm going to pick you up as soon as you fall. But you just, this is the only way. Maybe you know. Maybe you are this person. This is the only way I can learn. Is to slam my head again and again. Oh, yeah. That's right. You did say that, didn't you? But God's so gracious to know that our, our salvation is more important than our comfort. You know? This side of eternity was never about your comfort. Our dreams were not to be fulfilled on this side of eternity. He says, I'll give you the desires of your heart. And you go, good, the desires of my heart. I want a Ferrari, you know? I want a beach house. I want this. I want that. I want all these. This is the desires of my heart, God. Go get with it. Well, the desires of your heart are as you trust in him, as you believe him and you follow him and you're dwelling in his land and you're enjoying safe pasture and you have relationship with him. So the desires of your heart are really his desires. Kind of sneaky, right? But the cool thing is it's still fulfilling the desires that are in your heart because your heart is aligned. You know, your heart is also spoken of being completely wicked. You think you can trust your heart? You think you can trust your mind. One of the things at the conference I thought was really interesting was uh, this guy was speaking on how our, our moral intuitions have changed over as a society. And our gut instinct has changed. That doesn't seem right to me, right? Because we've become so self-serving, that doesn't sound like something that would be free for me. Well, if you look all throughout the Gospels, you look all throughout, you look at the life of Paul... Was Paul's life about pleasing Paul or getting everything he could get out of it, being the best Paul he could be? It was about honoring God, serving others. And in doing so, he unlocked the key, the secret of intimacy with God was the most important part. And then out of that came his life that changed history. Selfish people, they, they might be in the history books, but it never ends well. You see these kings who are all about themselves. And you go, the only thing, the only blip of, of you are on the radar is your wickedness. And we all look at you and go, what a shame. But the men and women who seek to honor and serve God leave a legacy far beyond themselves. It was cool. It was, the conference was just basically like how we are living in rough times, but God moves in rough times. Like when things aren't good, that's when he moves. And the gospel is still the answer to everything, to all of our problems, to all of our struggles in society. Jesus is the answer. We need to figure out how to best minister that in the world that we live in. Anyway, there you go. So Adam to Jesus, death to life. Verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. He paved the way in every way. He paved the way to resurrection. He paved the way to what it looks like to, to be submitted to the will of the father. We are called Christians. That means Christ follower, right? That's the point. We follow him. He's paved the way. So uh, don't just tell. And also I think that shows his love and his leadership. He didn't just tell us, he showed us, didn't he? Like he showed us to the 
perfection of life. Like he did it perfectly. He didn't just say, oh, just go do that thing over there. How hard could it be? I've never done it, but just try it. Right? We have, no, we have this, as we see in Hebrews, a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he's been tempted on every single front. He paved the way. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end and all rule and all authority under power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And we're speaking of the thousand-year reign of Jesus uh, from Revelation chapter 20. That he will finish what he started and he will crush Satan. That was another point we got. It was Pastor Tim Chaddock. Um, he was at Reality LA, and now it's Re- Reality London. And he was saying, in, in the uncertain times we live, in the world we live, it's super important that we know the ending. That he wins. Which makes fear ridiculous, doesn't it? It also makes aligning with the world a really bad bet. You want to play by the devil's rule? If you keep me safe, I'll hang out with you, Satan. He can't make that promise. He can't, he can't give you, he can't keep himself safe. And we know at the end, a thousand year, this rebellion of Satan, after a thousand year reign, and Jesus, it's not like a close battle. He crushes him. It's over, destroyed. Like, it's like, we're like, oh, Jesus, oh, man, he's kind of getting beaten up by Satan. And, and he's having this, oh, no, 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 no. This will not look like that at all. This is gonna, he's going to come in, and it's going to be a blowout. It's important we know the ending. And, and knowing the ending changes how we live in the midst of the story. That's the Pastor Tim Chaddock said. You know, when you watch a movie that's super stressful or a show that's super stressful, um, I'm like done watching those, by the way. I'm like, there's a couple of shows like that we used to watch when we first got married. We're like hanging on the edge of your seat and you're like, you can't sleep at night. And I'm like, now I'm like, I don't want to not sleep at night. I want to sleep at night. So why would I do this to myself when life has enough twists and turns in it in and of itself? Why do I need to like let the, the minds of Hollywood get me into even more of a crazy place, you know? But he was saying how when you don't know the ending to a movie, you're hanging on it and you're emotionally just kind of stuck. Once you know the ending, things change, right? You go, okay, just wait. It's pretty gnarly, huh? That you think it's all going to fall apart, right? It's okay, just wait. I know what's coming next. This is what's going to come next. You, you don't even know, but I know. And so you can actually sit there and you can enjoy the suspense knowing that in the end it all works out, right? But if you're living in the middle of the suspense and like, ah, oh, I don't know what to do. This is why we need this prophetic word to say, eh, it gets bad. There's times it gets bad. By the way, this is the smallest amount of your life that you will possibly experience here on earth, right? Eternity is in heaven. So, you know, that little like blip of hard work, it's going to be hard for a second and that's okay. This is where you get the crowns. This is where you get the opportunity to, to be used by God. Cause once you're there, you're just there. This is where we have our opportunities to be used by him. 
But don't ever forget the ending. He wins. And even worst case scenario, martyrdom here on this side of eternity. Or something like that. Where a young life goes. And I mean, that is so sad. It is sad to see people die. It is. It's so sad to see what's happened to believers all over the world throughout the last millennium. You know, it's so sad. But in the end, our hope is beyond death. And we're going to get that right now. What was the last enemy? Verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself. Well, that's good news, right? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You might say, if death is destroyed, what, is that, what does that mean for death destroyed? Spurgeon said, had a quote I thought was really good. If death is destroyed, why do Christians die? Meaning when Jesus conquered death, why do Christians die? Death since Jesus died is not a penal infection, uh, infliction upon the children of God. As such, he abolished it. And it can never be enforced. Why die the saints? Why die the saints then? Why? Because their bodies must be changed ere they can enter heaven. Saints die not now; they are dissolved and depart. (laughs) Like that, and that's the view of death from the mind of a Christian: is we are just not here anymore. We go there. We're going to end up in eternity on that side. Death is. That's why it's, you know, we're going to see it at the end of the chapter. Death's where's your sting. Because even though there is pain on this side of eternity, we have eternity. We have a hope. We know the ending. Verse 27. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is saying that even after all of this is said and done, Jesus still bows to the will of the Father. There is order. Which one is greater? There's, it's the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Greater in what sense? It is order. Right? We know the Holy Spirit does what? draws us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. The Holy Spirit gets you to get your eyes on Jesus. And what did Jesus say? I'm doing the will of Father. And so I'm just doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And then as soon as that's done, it's mission accomplished. It is all done. I have finished it. All same in, in uh, they're the same, but there's order. And, and again, Reno Corinth had issues with order as a whole. Verse 29, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? Now, notice he says they, because you're like, what is baptize? Baptize the dead? Like, do I have to do that too? You know, and uh, some cults have, have latched onto this. This was a pagan thing. That's why he says they, not us or some among you. They, he's saying they believe in the resurrection And you don't like they believe in some sort of a resurrection, but yet you Christians don't verse 30. He says, and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in, in, in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. He's saying, if there is no resurrection, why am I constant? It doesn't mean that he's like on the game show jeopardy. Okay. 
every hour or he has to watch it every hour. Why am I watching Jeopardy every single hour? If no, just a joke. Okay. There's no TVs. I like Jeopardy though. It's a good show. That's a side note. Uh, no, but he's saying, why are we stand? Why do we stand in Jeopardy every hour? Meaning like, why am I constantly in danger? Why is it? I'm always in trouble that I'm always getting slammed on every side. And he, and he says, I affirm by the boasting in you, which they loved boasting. He's like, here's my boasting, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die daily. Every day I'm dying. You see, Paul is stressed. Paul is, is he is uh, worn out in, in, physically. He's been through a lot. I mean, like if you follow the, like the lineage or like the, not lineage, but like the timeline of his life, it's, it's crazy what he endures. Like follow his path and just, just start reading through acts and then get some insights from the epistles. And you're going to go, whoa, you know, and that was just a Monday, you know, anyway, his whole life was hard. And he's like saying, I'm willing to endure all these things, but I wouldn't do it for nothing. Like, why would I do that for nothing? I'm putting my life, my life's in jeopardy constantly. And, and if it wasn't for him, why would I do it? Verse 32. If in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We don't really have much of what this, I would love to know the story of him fighting with beasts in Ephesus. What was that? You know, was it like animals or was it like big dudes? You know, <laughs> I fought with beasts. They were gnarly. Was it, what was it? We don't know exactly what it was that he fought with, but we do know. I think that's actually a good glimpse into the fact that not everything he did was even recorded. So that's only part of everything that he went through. Jed gave his testimony. He's like, it's so hard to give it all. It's like your whole life, right? You're 32 years old. Your whole life in 20 minutes. It's easy to get stuck in the the detail. But even if you get stuck in the details, even if you sat here and you talked for a full day, you would forget things, wouldn't you? There would be things that were not. And we even, we know that with Jesus, like that, that, the things that he said, that was just like, a, or that, that happened and we see in the, in the gospels are a glimpse of just a small speck of all the things that he did. All the things he experienced in his three years of ministry. Those are the ones we, by God's grace, are allowed to see and we have with us. But the idea is Paul went through a lot. He suffered a lot. And he's saying, I would not suffer in vain for no reason. I wouldn't do it. And he says, and if the dead don't rise, by the way, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If the dead don't rise, let us live like the world and just get what we can out of life. Which, by the way, like the more you think about it, it's so sad that that's all there is, right? People, are, this is all they have. Paul's saying, if the dead don't rise, this is all we have. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Eating and drinking, yeah, it sounds cool when you're young, right? 
oh, it's exciting, it's whatever. It gets less cool and more as time goes on, doesn't it? You go like, oh, yeah, okay, well, they're in college and that's kind of whatever. And it's not good, but I don't know. They're young and they'll figure it out. And then all of a sudden it's like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. Are you still in college? You're still figuring it out. The sad reality is, is that for many, this is all there is. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That is so sad. It's so sad to think about. And this is why the gospel is essential because the world really doesn't have answers, right? There's like this like kind of pseudo like peace with, I'm okay with just being alive and then dying and that's it. You're like, that's, that's it? What about the longing that was birthed and born inside of you for something more than this? There's something in there. And, and, and we have those keys. We have those truths. Because the fact of the matter is, it's not eat and drink for tomorrow we die. It's not just get what you can out of life and, and whatever. Who cares about anyone else? It's instead, Paul says, no, I'm willing to take this whole life and not just be about me, and, but take this whole life and waste it on serving people. Waste, you know, waste it. You're young, you're this, you're that. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. I'm going to give. I'm going to minister. I'm going to preach because I know the greater than this world has to offer. But the world says to us, and, and it creeps its way into the church. And we go, well, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But also I like heaven too, you know. Like we die and then we go to heaven, you know. So both. We like both. I think both. Paul's not saying that this is a good idea. It's, it's not. Because what, look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good, bad, uh, evil company corrupts good habits. You're like, that's where my parents got it from. Right? Okay. You show me your friends, I show you your future, right? You ever heard that one? This is, by the way, this is so true, isn't it? Your friends are everything. The people you're around, if you find yourself around people that are struggling, that are not doing good, and and that are like pulling you down and sucking you down, not that you shouldn't love them and even be able to minister to them, but if that is all you're around, then it, it is it will be what you are. I, I know this personally because I've done this, right? You hang around the wrong people in the wrong scenario for long enough. And before you know it, you're in situations you did not think you would be in, you know? And it's like a, almost like a saved by the bell moment, you know, or, or a Ferris Bueller or something where all of a sudden you like, like you pause and you're like, bitch, you're wondering how I got here. <laughs> As someone's about to hit you and you're like, bitch, you're wondering how I got here. And you're like, um, here, here's the story. <laughs> it was a lot of little things that led to big things that led to more big things. And here I am. But it all came down to, honestly, by God's grace somehow, um, for me, I, my, right after high school, started hanging out with these, these random guys that I really didn't have anything in common with at all. 
we just played baseball and we screwed around. We had fun. It was my friend Brandon who just passed this last year. And then my buddy Jeff, who I actually had the most in common with, who's spoken here before. And we were all hanging around. None of us were really Christians or following the Lord. But somehow I liked being around them. I was like, these guys are, they're not into stupid stuff. And we just had fun. We act like little boys and we would play wiffle ball and paintball and whatever. We just had fun. Brandon had a pool and, and it was like, he had like had 13 acres in his backyard so we could do whatever we wanted to. We like go shoot snakes with BB guns and stuff. I know, I know. Leave me alone. Okay. Animal rights activists. Okay. But we were, you know, 18. And so we were just did whatever we wanted to do. We just had a lot of fun. And being around them, we all slowly started getting picked off one after another, getting saved. It was like crazy. And we started being around each other and, and we were all of a sudden our conversations were changing from females to other things, you know, <laughs> and you started being like, you know, talking about the Lord and you start talking about like, uh, these different things happening. And all of a sudden Jeff becomes a missionary. We went to this conference one time and this lady comes up to us out of nowhere. And she says, you guys, you guys come here. I need to talk to you. And she says, the four of you are going to be used in ministry mightily. It was, uh, four of us, two of us were saved at this point. Two were not. Um, I, I was one of them. Jeff was one of them. We were the two that were actually were already had started following Jesus. Both pastors at this point. Now we're both pastors. Um, Jeff was a missionary in Kosovo for like 10 years. Super, that guy's hardcore rad. The other two are my friends, Daniel and Raymond. Neither one of them were Christians. Raymond's super smart, really heady guy. And he ends up eventually getting saved and uh, got his doctorate under N.T. Wright at St. Andrews in Scotland. Brilliant mind. And he's like contending for the gospel. Amazing. My other friend, Daniel, is a senior pastor of Woodlands Church in Crestline, California. All four. But what, what happened is, is God saved us and brought us together. And then Brandon, he, he was like that, uh, all into apologetics and an author and these friends were that I kind of was like, yeah, they're kind of a weird little group. But like what we had in common was Jesus. And that wasn't, that was like so inviting to be around. And they called, we called each other out and we would love on one another and we would uh, pray for one another and we'd see one another struggle and go through stuff and then come back on the other side. And then this was everything. The times when I would go astray and kind of leave them to the side and go do my own thing with my old friends and other things. And uh, I'd find myself alone. I would always kind of go back to my friends. Your friends are super important. The people you spend your time with are super important. Not to say that you have friends that are in the darkness that you just burn them and say, see you later. But that's got to be like a, a mission field to love them and to encourage them or whatever. Because if you find that you're just living in the darkness all the time, you're not going to find the joy you're looking for in the light because you're living in the darkness. But if you walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus covers us. And then we have something to tell our friends. Then we have something to help them. And it's amazing how many times friends on the other side, when I would start walking with the Lord and the God would be working in my life, I'd have opportunities to pull them out of the darkness. Come with me. I'm not going with you. You come with me. <laughs> Let's get out of here. 
This isn't where we want to be. Let's go. Hey, I love you. Let's get, let's go. Time to go. Evil company corrupts good habits. It wears on our character. We need to be lights in the darkness, but surrounding ourselves constantly with darkness will force out our light to dim. That's like we had that worship time, and that's to recharge, right? Every Sunday, by the way, we can do that, you know. <laughs> just worship. These aren't just songs we sing. This isn't just a, let's get through this, get to the bagels. But we do it because we, we spend time with the Lord, and he speaks to us, and, and he ministers to us, and we can pour our heart out on him as we sing about how good he is, and how strong and mighty and powerful and loving he is. And we say, God, fill us and, and help me to not hold on to anything or keep a grip on anything. Have your way in me. Verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame, saying, you believers of Corinth, you're saying you're experiencing the goodness of God, but the people around you have no idea who he even is. The knowledge of God should make you want to tell other people about him. Otherwise, you haven't seen how good he is yet. You see what I'm saying? Like, if you haven't experienced how good God is, then you wouldn't understand why you would need to tell someone else about it. But if you're in understanding the crazy grace of God, that the amazing grace of God that saved a wretch like me, the dude who wrote that song, used to like trade slaves, right? Like that's, that guy got it. He wrote amazing grace, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Can you hear conviction? And then he spent his life, the rest of his life, ministering to people like taking a very lowly position, right? And, and understanding like he's nothing. I'm nothing now. I've, I, I've, I, I see my sin for what it is, but yet God raised him back up. John Newman, is that his name? Yes. There we go. At least two of us are wrong, if nothing else. But he says, I, I love this, verse 34. It's a call, awake to righteousness. And do not sin. Maybe that's a word for us. By the way, here's, here's the answer. It is to all of us. Awake to righteousness. Like awake to what he wants you to do. Awake to be awoken to um, a, a calling. To being separated unto the Lord. Right? That's sanctification, being separated unto the Lord. And sometimes you go, okay, well, my friends always drag me down. Just take a break from them for a second. Spend time with the Lord. It's important, right? Just do it. And then he'll lead you how to handle all of those things in the future. But I would encourage you, look around you. You want some friends? (laughs) There's some people around here that will support and love. And that's what we need to be. To be able to support, love one another, and, and, and share, and grow, and encourage, and wake to righteousness. 
so that the world, so that they wouldn't say, well, why didn't anyone tell me about him? You've been living with this hope and you never told me. Sometimes we got to come back to that place of our first love. God restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bring me back to my first love. Help me to follow you. Help me to trust you. Was some something one of the guys said at the conference was, uh, and I, I mentioned it in our prayer this morning. If we're willing, he is able. Right? Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. If we are willing, he is able. You want to know what your life can look like in the future? If you are willing, he is able. Surrender to the one who can hold your life way better than you can. Trust him. Let him use you and the people and the lives around you to be light, to be salt, to affect those that are lost. We once were lost. Someone reached out to us. Someone loved on us. Someone cared about us. Now you get the opportunity to do the same. So God, we praise you for that. God, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for your amazing love. We thank you for your patience with us. And God, we pray that you would help us to be set apart.